Are you an established consultant interested in being a guest on this show? Then head on over to leadersofconsulting.com forward slash guest. And if you meet our criteria, you can go ahead and book yourself on the show. So welcome back to Leaders of Consulting, the show that brings you interviews with experts in the trenches at the forefront of consulting, sharing their own perspectives, industry insights and resources they've picked up along the way. On this episode, we're joined by Steve Brody, who is the founder of Brody & Associates, where he coaches high-performing CEOs and consults on strategic business plans, marketing plans, and market research. He's previously served in several management positions within the Minute Maid company, Minute Maid being the juice division of Coca-Cola. He's also the author of What Happens After the Sale, Insights into the Business and Personal Journey After the Big Event. So welcome on to the show, Steve. Thank you. I'm looking forward to it, Jonathan. Excellent to have you here with us today. So, Steve, why don't you kick us off with one particular approach, tip, tool, or strategy that you think other people in the profession of consulting should probably know about, but maybe they don't? One area is uh, what I'm going to describe is in in the leadership area. And there are actually three segments where, where I focus my work with clients and and they overlap with each other. And so it's kind of the intersection of these three things. The the first is the leadership area. And that's what I'll come back to in just a a minute. Some of the tools that I use for that with a, with a CEO or founder Um, that leads to the second area, which is strategic planning which really deals with where is the person going? Where is the business going? You know, what is the future? What's the future of the company in, in that evolution? Then, and that overlaps with then the kind of natural step question to the third area, which is a discussion about exit planning. So when is someone thinking about exit or how long will they be staying in their firm? So it's the intersection of those three of leadership, strategic planning, and exit planning. So if I start with the leadership area, the, the tool and, and, and what I find is, is very helpful that, that some people use, but not all of the coaches or consultants that I know. Um, I use an instrument that am licensed to use from one of the well-known companies called Berkman, Berkman International. So there's some well-known names like DISC and Myers-Briggs, you may have heard of some of those. Berkman is one of the larger ones like that. And it's a personality assessment. So when I'm meeting with a client or even a prospect, uh, a very interesting part of the discussion is how do they appear? You know, how do they come across and how do people see them? And often they don't really tune into that. And these kind of instruments can be very helpful to give them some perspective. So, you know, as you probably have seen, there there is no right or wrong. You know, some people say, well, can you give me five things that every CEO you know has to do? What are the right or wrong? And, and it's very hard to do that because each CEO has a different background. But what is important to pay attention to is what does this particular person have? What is their background and what is their interest level? Because they have to know about themselves, where their interests are, in order to interact with their team, with their team members. And, and so there's a lot there. There's a lot there that the instrument really helps to uh, stimulate the conversation. In fact, very often, I think that probably one of the one of the degrees that I should have had instead of just a business degree was would be a degree in psychology or a, a degree in, in clinical psychology because we're we're really tuning into what are the motivational elements that make a person behave or influence in a certain way and a lot of that is it's the personality as opposed to something they're going to read about in a business book in an academic book. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. I saw, I saw Berkman on your profile and that was one that I, uh, that was a personality 
assessment I hadn't heard of before. I'm familiar with DISC, but Berkman's uh, one that's that's new to me. Can you describe how that might be slightly different from some of the other traditional kind of personality profiling or assessment? Well, it's it's similar. I mean, some of the big ones, the, the large ones that are used across the U.S. and in in other countries as well. But these are all nowadays a, a an internet driven, and it's a it's a software tool. So 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 if someone goes through in the Berkman, it takes about thirty minutes. There's about five hundred or so statements that someone has to either rank or compare what their interests are. Some of the others are shorter. I mean, maybe there's you know, 50 items. So the Berkman is rather extensive and, and it's dealing with what someone's interests are. And so then it goes through a variety of categories, whether someone desires to influence or persuade other people. So Berkman tends to use colors. Green is an indicator for persuasion and influence it. Uh, that often is sales and marketing driven. Red is an indication about tasks and projects, and that tends to be operations, someone who's a, maybe an engineer or a background that's dealing with milestones and deadlines and a lot of questions that get answered relative to that. The third color is yellow, which is analytical, and that has to do with someone that likes a lot of process and, and procedures. Someone and so you know certain job titles or it's difficult to stereotype per se, but some really fall into a commonality of that. So um, if you know someone who's a CPA, or if you know somebody who is a CFO of a company or a VP of finance, I, I would almost indicate to you that nine times out of ten, they're going to show up as yellow in the quadrant of the Berkman scale because they're dealing with analysis. They're looking at things that happened in the past. Mm-hmm. And that tends to be a very common. And then the fourth and final quadrant is one that's in the blue and it deals with innovation. So it's kind of the creative area of uh, as someone who's looking at that, the future and they want to spend more time dealing with what's the direction where the company is going so you can almost map out in a, in a company, not just the CEO, but if I take executive teams, map them out on these quadrants. And it's very interesting to see where people are kind of clustered inside an, an organization. And, and it gives you, because you're not, you're not trying to have everybody in your organization have a strong interest in one versus the other. You want people in different departments that are going to have stronger interests because you want to have a blend, you know, a complementary and, and a blend. Um, but you can almost think about the culture of some companies. You know, I mean, if we were to take broader uh, views or perception of a company, it, it wouldn't be too difficult if I were to walk you down a path or ask you some questions about, you know, give me some companies that you think are highly creative or always focused on new things and, where that's going. And, and and pretty quickly, you'd get to, oh, well, maybe you're talking about the Googles of the world. Maybe you're talking about Microsoft. You're talking about Apple. You're talking about people that are looking at all these trends, these trends of what's happening. And, and some companies will tend to have a lot of influence surrounding that. Um, others will folk, you know, maybe it's energy related and oil and gas related topical subject now with what's going on in the world and Ukraine and Russia and and um, people that have a background in in engineering you'd almost always find fall into the, the red quadrant so you can use this to try to help the conversation in, in mapping out what a good organization mix might look like. Uh, is, is is the way that it, it gets used. Yeah, yeah. I, I would also imagine that it would come in handy when understanding the culture of an organization, like some of the ways you've described, yeah. or understanding how people want to be communicated to or what sort of things resonate with them. Yeah, it, it really does. And I'll tell you one of the biggest ones, and this is the one that I always have to kind of remind my CEO clients and prospects that, 
they because they they'll ask me can I use this instrument with a, a candidate that they're interviewing or someone that they're looking to fill a certain role. And I say, well, yes, we can. It can be very helpful. And the question they'll ask then, will this indicate whether, so I give this assessment to someone, to XYZ, will it indicate to me, should I hire this person? The answer to that question is no, it will not, it will not indicate that. But what it will do it will give you a very good feel for what is a driver of this person, meaning what is the person interested in? And so what you're trying to do is match interests of the individual to then the requirements of the, the job, because then chances are somebody will be more satisfied in that role. So it can be a very, very helpful tool when someone's looking for a candidate, but you know, one of the challenges we get to is that a lot of CEOs want, are, are looking for a, a black or, or white. They're, they're looking for an answer. Give me something that will tell me a definitive answer. Well, very often in the business world, we don't have definitive answers. We have lots of scenarios and we have continuums. And we don't know until after the fact whether something will. In fact, some real... Experts and a lot of authors will say that, you know, a, a way of knowing whether a CEO has been successful is really you won't truly find out until about two or three years after the person has left that role or left that company. And then you'll really find out what some of the, the, the legacy or the things that carry over. And so that's where I say it, it overlaps some of the the, the psychological areas of what what motivates human behavior and what changes there are from person to person. Yeah, that's very interesting, looking at things from a different timeline there. And you've had a career that's spanned, you know, over, over the decades. Can you point to anyone who's had uh, a particularly big significance or impact on your career that comes to mind? Well, there are really several. I mean, there's quite a number of people because, you know, in the beginning, the whole first phase of my career was the corporate world. And, and that was with the Coca-Cola company. And, and there was an individual that really was a, a tremendous uh, uh, mentor to me in those years. I was with Coke for 16 years and in the division that I was in. And he was someone that was willing to, to really give a lot of authority and truly delegate to people at, at an early age. And, and, and that just made a big impact on me. And instead of something having to wait 10 or 12 years before you, you get to certain promotions. So, you know, it comes to the aspect of uh, is a company willing to let people fail fast is, is kind of the characteristic. And, and, and that's what I'm describing in that regard is that's an empirical kind of basis. And what I mean is, of, uh, you know, you can spend a lot of money and do a lot of market research and in, in trying to figure out certain feedback and, and items. But most of the time, what, what most business people don't understand is that business is, is really a function of, of trial and error. And are you, are you willing to learn from mistakes and then adjust, adjust things as you go? as opposed to predict in advance what product or what item is going to be successful. It's very, very hard to predict in, in advance. And so the real trick is in your ability to observe behavior. And, and that's what this individual that I had worked for for a number of years was, was very in tune to that. And, and the ability to observe behavior and then adjust is what uh, is, I think, where really the successful companies and the successful marketers have uh, have learned. So, uh, you know, I think too many people often believe that a company will do something and know how it's going to turn out and, if you will, is going to try to manipulate a category or an industry. And that really does not happen very often. You find out once you're in the real world, meaning selling something to an audience, to a consumer or to someone else, and then watching their behavior 
and then adjusting as you go. So, you know, one of the big lessons to learn in that is you don't wait for something to be 98% complete with all of the answers because it just takes too long, especially in today's world, is to get something out there and start, I'll use the word experimenting or start refining something because you learn when I say an empirical basis, what the great marketers understand is you learn from the audience. You learn as you're doing something. So you never, something that you would never do or rarely ever do is come up with an idea, believe that it's the right idea, take it and then expand it nationally by pushing a button. What you would always do is go to a test market. What does a test market mean? You go to one geography or two geographies, and you start actually using it in a commercial setting in order to find out how your audience behaves and then use those results to, to then determine where will, where will you go. So that, that adds a layer of complexity when you go into the, the consumer world that way. If you're going to do some um, experimenting with, with a, a smaller geography, because when you do that, I mean, think about what happens. The competition is going to study what you're doing. They're going to look at you. In other words, you have to become visible. You have to become visible, and they'll start watching what, what you're doing. But it's really the only way that you can learn and see what the audience, how the audience is, is going to react. People find it, most users have a difficult time telling you what they would want to have but if you show them something or a prototype or one or two options, they can choose from two options or three options. But if you go to them and say, what would you like to have? Often you'll very find your audience really can't tell you, but they yeah. can tell you, do I like A better than B versus C? Then that's, that's making choices when they're faced with actually seeing seeing the the product you know the product or the or the service yeah it reminds me of a of a saying and this is probably going to be terribly paraphrased but i think it was ford or someone who said you know if i asked consumers what they wanted they probably told me faster horses they wouldn't have told me they wanted <laughs> well, that's <a> right <laughs> yeah yeah that, that's a correct statement you, yeah. you, that's why the real trick in the consumer but it's not just the consumer world. i mean Think of it as to who is your audience, who is your customer. You can be in the B2B space and the business-to-business space. So mm -hmm. it's hard to go to someone and say, tell me what you would want. It's much easier and more effective to say, let me show you version A. Let me show you version B. Let me actually have you use it or try it. And then let me observe or evaluate what do you do and how do you do with it. And so that's what I would say to you, that the great marketers understand that. And that's how they determine, will something be successful? And it's in an empirical audience of, of actually trying and using the product or the service. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. So it sounds like, you know, there's a lot of importance in rapid iteration and also acting on incomplete information you won't have all the answers immediately you, you have don't to go wait out. you don't wait until something is 98 percent right because by then the marketplace may have already adapted or, or not adapted but 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 uh changed mm. so by the time you go out if you wait till you're 98 percent accurate you probably have to be building your product over again <laughs> yeah and you don't really, and you don't really have time to to do that yeah yeah, very true. Um, so switching gears a little bit now, I'd, I'd like to just focus on people that you tend to work with typically or your ideal clients. I mentioned at the, at the start that you work with high achieving CEOs, but I'd love for you to illustrate more of a picture for us. Uh, what kind of characteristics do these CEOs share? So first of all, the, the audience that I'm concentrating on is, mm -hmm. is in what is called the middle market, but what a lot of people will define as the middle market. So let me define that space in terms of the characteristics of that prospect or that customer. So the middle market means a company that is doing on the low end about $5 million or $10 million in revenue. 
five or 10 million in revenue up to about 500 million in revenue. So I'm not talking about startup businesses, people that are pre-revenue stage. I mean, you know, early, early stage companies. I'm not describing those. That, that's a whole other area that some people focus on. Um, so this marketplace of five to 500 million now, the more importantly, the ones that I deal with because of the backgrounds that I've had are more in the niche of those that are doing in the neighborhood of 50 million up to about 200 million in revenue. That's the size that, and these are, and next characteristic is that they're privately held. They're privately held companies. These are not public companies, not publicly traded. So the marketplace today for, in private firms, and what a lot of people don't know, unless they're been in the business world for a long time and, and have seen some of this, is that uh, the, the, the bulk of employment in the United States is comprised in these sectors that I'm mentioning, which are privately held companies. More people work for privately held companies than do all of the larger and publicly traded companies in the U.S., but much of the attention in the media world is on the public companies. Why? Frankly, it's easier to get information about them. They have to file reports, and, and it's easier to find out what they're doing. But the, the bulk of the employment in the U.S. is created by privately held firms. So that that is the audience that that um predominantly focused on really not the publicly traded companies. So these people that are founders, they're the founder of a company in this space. Um, you know, big question becomes, where did they come from? What were they doing before? Where, where did some of their expertise come from? Uh, is it a, a business that was a generational business in the family? Uh, and, you know, and very, very few, when you look at private companies, very few companies in the U.S. actually make it to the second generation, the second or third generation. That's pretty rare that you'll have a company uh, be from someone who is the father and then goes to the son or daughter, goes to someone else. It, it, it doesn't normally happen that way. So you're in an environment where you're trying to look at and say, so how does someone, how do they know what they don't know? And one way of thinking about that is that the kind of characteristic that I'm really looking for, the most important one is, is someone that has a, a mindset and an attitude about they are always in a learning environment. They, they want to constantly learn uh, and determine where they should be going, where their business or where they themselves should be going. And so often they have not worked in a lot of other business environments. Now, maybe they worked for some big company, maybe they were exposed to something else and they, um, they, they started to see some of the things that they like or, or don't like. But, but sometimes they have not had that kind of background. So you, you get to that question, which is kind of an interesting question of, of how do you know what you don't know? And that means that you're looking for someone who is going to be another phrase in, in, in describing that is someone who is a lifelong learner, that they always want to be seeing where to evolve next. And um, so it, it gets into, and a little bit earlier when I described some of the overlap of some of the areas that I focused on. Um, it's been said, it's been said that there's only two ways that someone can leave a company, that if an owner or a founder can leave a company. And and one is vertical and the other is horizontal. Now what that means, vertical means you are choosing to leave. You sell or you transfer something, or you're walking out and you have a choice to make, and you leave based on some of those trends. Um, horizontal means 
you're being carried out. <laughs> Maybe something has happened to you. You know, you died. Of, uh, and so here's where here's where we get to a dilemma, Jonathan. I mean, and one of the big challenges and really a dilemma with these private firms is that the majority of them do not have any type of board of directors. They have no board. So the question becomes, what happens if something happens to them? And maybe they've got 100 employees or 200 employees. And let's say they're the owner. They don't have partners. They don't have other equity owners. Suppose something happens to them, some crisis. Suppose they die. What, what is the future of the company and, and what have they planned for? So in one sense, anyone who is an owner really needs to be thinking rather longer term about their future and it's not that it's a morbid approach that we're talking about. But what I'm saying, the challenge is they have to be thinking about the consequence of their death. Because what I'm saying is if they don't, I would say to you, they're really not being very responsible to their audience of employees or family and and uh, just what will. And so when I ask someone a question, when I'm meeting someone, you have a group of interesting questions I ask some people early on. One question I always ask someone after they tell me a little bit about the business is, so tell me what happens if the plane goes down? Now, nine times out of 10, they'll tell me what I call is the wrong answer. And what I mean by the wrong answer, see, they, they think what I'm asking them is, do they have a life insurance policy? And they'll answer me, well, yeah, I've thought of that. You know, I'm married or my kids still have to go to college. It'll be difficult. But but I have a $10 million life insurance policy. And so it'll be difficult, but but they'll be fine. Well, and I tell them, well, I'm glad that you thought of that for your family. But actually, that that isn't the audience that I'm asking you about. Because maybe you've just taken me through how important these people you're mad let's say you have four vice presidents in your company maybe you're a 50 million dollar business and mm. you have a few hundred people and and uh, you've told me how important these four people are to you and if i ask you so what happens if something occurs and you're not here what happens to those people do have, have you provided for them do they own any portion of the company and most of the time they tell me, well, no, I'm the only owner. And I say, well, so then really I, I, my role is to hold up this mirror, hold up this mirror to them and say, so you've told me how critical these people are to you. But in reality, you're really not treating it that way, are you? Because your success plan, your future strategic plan here then is you're telling me that your plan is that you're going to live forever. Yeah. Right. And <laughs> it's like, well, no, but well, then what do they do? They don't have a board of directors. There isn't someone else who's going to choose the successor. So, so, so that's a big dilemma. That's yeah. a big dilemma in a privately held company. What happens in the future? Yeah. Th this uh, makes me think of, there's a, podcast hosting company. I'm not going to name names, um, but uh, well, there are quite a few different podcast hosting companies, but yeah. this one in particular is run by one person and that's one person doing all the support. They, he does an amazing job. I don't know how he does it, but he's the person when you contact support, he's the one answering and, to, and he has, they, they are doing pretty well, but you know, and it's, yeah, it's run extremely leanly, but it does make you think what happens when something happens to him. <laughs> well, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> because, because, yeah, your example is very realistic because, you see, it can be a small company. This doesn't have to be, I mean, the audience that I'm dealing with, people that have 100 or 200 or 300 employees, but mm -hmm. but what you're describing, someone may have two or three, maybe just has two or three. But if, if they're the major originator or one that's doing any, all that work, suppose that they aren't there. Well, that, that same issue happens for them. It, it, it happens for them, which is, so what does that future potentially look like? Yeah. That's, that's a big question in, in a private company. Yeah. 
And, and so I'm, I'm curious, you know, with these private companies, slightly less visible than the public ones out there, what do you do in order to, what, what kind of channels do you use uh, in terms of your sales and marketing to engage or reach out or, or be visible with, uh, with that particular target market? Well, it's, it's, it's very much a, um, a, a referral-based business, Jonathan. So, mm-hmm. I mean, at this point, after leaving the corporate world and then when I went on to the next phase to, to run companies for equity groups, I, I ran four different companies over a 10-year period that were owned by equity investors. But after doing that, then I started doing the coaching activity where I'm just working with individual businesses. So I don't have a staff of people. So the channels that, you know, once I start to engage with some clients and what I'm really looking for, and you can think of it like most professional service companies in, in that would be similar to a lawyer or an accountant or those kind of people. And, and what I'm describing is a referral based business. So if someone is pleased with the activity and the topics that we're discussing and that we're covering. Uh, and by me being overt with them and, and talking to them about desiring to add on some additional clients, I'm really asking them, are there people that they know that could benefit with the relationship like what that person and I are doing? So I'm asking them for referrals. So the channel is primarily referrals of uh, other companies and people that they know that could benefit from having an advisory role, the advisory role of a, of a coach. Now, the other big, you know, in recent years, the bigger channel, bigger in terms of size um, that has developed is, is the world of, of LinkedIn, that where there are 700 million and change people that have a LinkedIn profile. And so uh, that's a rather robust audience. Not everyone is not not every CEO is spending a lot of time on LinkedIn, but may turn that over to someone in their firm, a VP of sales or someone else where they're yeah. recruiting. But but that becomes a channel that today there there it can generate a significant number of possibly interested firms. But it's harder to break through that on LinkedIn because some of those leaders, the CEOs, aren't necessarily the ones spending a lot of their time on LinkedIn, they're delegating some of that. So it has been more referral-based, I would say, yeah. that has been effective uh, to meet other people that that fit the niche that I'm looking for. And therefore, it's a very fragmented, you know, the, the, the type of activity that, that a business coach does. Uh, and it is different. In definition, it's different from the consulting side. I mean, there's kind of a dotted line between coaching and consulting that differentiates between the two. Because a consultant is taking on a project and is hired for some expertise and knowledge. You know, will you come in and write a sales plan for me? Can I hire you to come in and write a marketing plan? Uh, That's more of a consulting activity. A coaching activity is someone who is really not coming in with the answers to that CEO, but is coming in asking a lot of of, uh, thoughtful questions. And so the the role of the coach is to help be the the role of an advisory board. And so while uh, one of the bigger challenges that I think you had asked about earlier and I'll use an expression which is very trite, and I know you've heard it, and a lot of people have heard heard of it. But what I'm about to tell you really is very significant in terms of that relationship with someone who is the CEO or founder, and that is one of the single biggest areas of frustration that a person has who's in that role is that it's lonely at the top. It's very lonely at the top, which means. Who do they have to confide in? Who are they really going to confide in where they can feel comfortable talking about something that is very vulnerable, where they may be vulnerable or that they may have anxieties about? 
And so that's a lonely role. There's not a lot of other people that they have maybe inside their organization that they that they feel they're willing to divulge some of the quote secrets or direction of of where they want to go. So another one of the phrases that you hear often is that you say that the it, it's been said that one of the biggest fears of a CEO one of the biggest fears is being found out. And what does that mean? What do I mean by being found out? Being found out means that you don't have all the answers. So your employees are looking to you. They they kind of assume that you will have all the answers. Well, that's a big fear that a lot of CEOs have because they may think, gee, I don't really have all the answers, but I who are the employees going to come to? Yeah. So it, you know, because it's kind of a circular uh, act activity about, yeah. and, and so the coaching role is to help that person who that they, they would be willing to divulge all sorts of confidential areas to the coach that they may not necessarily divulge to a broader group of employees. Yeah. I see uh, well, one of the other things that I've, I've seen you've put together are these masterminds for CEOs, uh, which is great, which is also, I suppose, another safe space for CEOs to be able to talk to other people who share those same, maybe some of those same anxieties or struggles uh, that are difficult to talk to. You know, it's like you say, it's lonely at the top. It's difficult to find other people to talk to about those issues where people understand them. Yeah, so that, that can be, and that was the last thing I was doing prior to, uh, in, in the last phase, uh, I was with an organization called Vistage, Vistage Worldwide, and um, and that's a peer group. It's a it's a, it's a peer-to-peer organization of a mastermind group, and I was involved with that for 20-some-odd years alongside of coaching clients that I had who, for whatever reason, were not in, in that group. Um and in that peer group, it's it's a very Vistage is the largest one in the U.S. It has twenty three thousand members, twenty three thousand companies that are members, and it follows a, a, a very structured uh, uh, criteria. Meaning, no one is allowed to be a competitor. You can't be a competitor and be a member of a given group uh, or a vendor uh, with a very significant relationship. So. Um, if you're going to use that group as somewhat of an advisory board, you're going to have to talk about important financial information, trends, and, 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 and important things about the company. Obviously, you wouldn't have any competitors in a, in a group like that. So it's a peer-to-peer model. And the person that runs that group, the role I have is called a chair, or that's a facilitator or a chair. Of, and, and that can be that can be a very helpful place where some of these CEOs can go to be able to, to um, explore other approaches and insights so that, you know, maybe someone wants to grow by acquisition. Maybe they want to buy a company and they've never bought a company. So that could be an example of a great topic that might come up and have a discussion during one of the monthly meeting on anyone who has been through an acquisition could could we have a discussion about what are some of the insights or things that you might do differently that someone else could learn from? Because some of these things are, you don't have to rebuild. It's not creating a new rocket ship. It's just, you might not have had experience with it. So some of those kind of peer groups can be very valuable in, in, in that regard. But even though the largest of those is someone like Vistage, it has 23,000 members but but that's a very tiny that's a tiny number Jonathan you know there's there's some millions of companies in the US that are all privately held you know this middle market that I was telling you uh, there's a lot larger audience of that than just the 23,000 <laughs> that Vistage has so um, hardly any business owners really have ever heard of or know about what Vistage is it's it, it just doesn't get a lot of awareness but it can be extremely valuable to function like the role of a, of a board of directors, almost kind of an advisory, an advisory board. So, yeah, 
you know, that, that can be helpful. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Uh, masterminds are always very helpful groups to be part of, but not always the easiest to facilitate. So kudos to you for, for being part of that. Um, and as we were also talking about earlier, I'm curious if, say, obviously you have this book, which talks about what happens post acquisition. I'm curious, can you tell us more about where the idea for the book came from? What compelled you to? Yeah. I mean, here's, I, I know this is an audio, but a little picture that you can see of the book is mm-hmm. in paperback. It's called what happens after the sale that I published some years ago. Uh, and it's on Amazon and uh, there's a paper version, and then there's an electronic version. So, but where this came about, I mean, my goal or objective was not to write a book that then I would turn around and sell thousands and thousands of copies. Of, um, what it really, where it really happened was from one of my clients, one one of the members of the group that I was running of CEOs, and and he was going through uh, a possible sale of his business. And during that process, when he started with me and started as a member of the group, um, he was doing $20 million in revenue. And, uh, and, and about 12 or 15 years later, he had gotten the business up to $200 million. So he grew from $20 million to $200 million. And he and another individual started the company, and they, they each had 50% of the equity, 50-50. Well, there was a point in time when... He was looking at possibly uh, doing something different, or the relationship with his partner wasn't wasn't the the greatest, and uh, that their futures might look different. And so, what ended up happening is in the industry that he was in, which was the energy business, uh, some public companies were interested in in the, the space he was in, and and he went through an actual process and ended up. Um, selling his business to a publicly traded firm. And so during that whole process, that whole, and which took about a year and change to go through all of the steps, uh, I went to him one day and said, you know, I would like to come interview you because I know that, and I've been told from some of my investment banker friends, people in the finance world have said to me that in the next 10 years, Five million companies are going to change hands in this country. And I knew that a lot of people were going to go through the different steps and procedures that he had gone through in order to successfully do this. And it's it's a it's a you know it's a lengthy process, and there's a lot of things you need to understand. And I said, So I'd like to be able to tell your story. And that's where it began. And and he agreed to do that. And I said, let me come out and interview you. And, and, and I just had some ideas of what the, the path would look like and, and did that, interviewed him, got four or five hours of him on tape, uh, and then went down the path. It was very interesting because I decided to self-publish. And so uh, I started through outsourcing. And, and really one of the kind of one of the, Key things that can be done nowadays is with a degree of outsourcing because I'm not a writer. It's it's not something that I had a lot of background in terms of writing, but I went I went and 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 saw how this process could work, interviewed him, and then started to go to some of these companies that are out there. Like Fiverr is one, and there's another one called Upwork. dot uh, com and through outsourcing and hiring someone who can be an editor and others, I created this book that then I could publish and have it literally print on demand, which means I can print one book at a time. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and so it becomes a, a very valuable process nowadays to be able to, to kind of tell the story and, and it kind of overlaps to some of the CEO audience of saying, think about if you own the company and you're running a business and you've had it for a long time. Uh, a very interesting concept is you have a story behind why are you in that business? Why did you start that business? Where is it and where are you and where is it going? And do your people know that story or what about some 
prospect that you're interviewing to join your company, do they know that? So in a sense, one opportunity could be any business owner should really have a book about their company because it becomes a mechanism. People enjoy the, the, um, the drama and the understanding of a story. And so a lot of those principles went behind my interest in creating that book that then I could deal with other people to say, look, here's an example. Here's an example of one and what this particular business owner went through. You'll probably go through something similar to that. So that, that, that book became a way of helping get the message to be delivered as to how to, you know, how does that type of knowledge become of interest or helpful to a business owner or to other, other type of applications. And, and so the world of self-publishing has really grown and it's become easier to do things by outsourcing uh, some of the skills to somebody else for then for me to then put it all together. So where in the past where that may have taken two years or more for someone to do, uh, I put together all of that material and all of those steps and did all of that in a time frame of about 90 days, 90 days, and, and got it to then be available to where it could be purchased on amazon.com or someone could listen to it electronically. And it's kind of the world we live in today. If things can happen, can happen faster. Yeah, absolutely. I'm curious, like, did you also, what was a ghostwriter involved in that process as well? Is that something that you, you sourced or is it just the editing and the, the other parts? This one, it, that, that is a possibility that some people do. Jonathan. Mm. This was not the use of a ghostwriter, yeah. but what I did, it was something that I was exposed to from, uh, someone else, and that because I uh, I actually interviewed my client and had all the, these four hours worth of all of that, uh, when I started to go through the techniques, I then went to someone to create a transcript for me. So I went to Fiverr and I hired someone. I said, I have a digital file. It's four hours long. I would like to have a Word document created. And I hired someone to create a transcript. And I suppose there's some software that people use nowadays, but mine came out to be 25,000 words. The interview ended up being 25,000 words. So now what was delivered to me was a word document of 25,000 words. And based on the size that I wanted of the size of the book, um, which is like a six by 10, and uh, that would turn out to be about 80 some odd pages. Uh, but that's just a transcript of how some, you know, the person is the interview. But now I needed someone, I needed an editor because I needed it to flow correctly. And so almost like a, a ghostwriting that you asked about. But then I went back to one of the services uh, and I hired an editor, someone who had done it, been in the world of publishing and business books. And, and I said, I need this to flow properly, grammatically be correct. So I hired an editor to do all of that. The only thing that I actually wrote, so my book is 85 pages. The, the only thing that I actually wrote was the last chapter. All of the rest came from the interviews, the transcripts, the editors, and through the use of, through the use of these uh, uh, resources, which today, I guess it's called the, the gig economy is what we, you know, what you can look at today where some people don't want to go get a job working for someone else. They, they want to be independent. You can do some of that yourself. So uh, I did not use a ghostwriter to your question, but, but I would say it's kind of substitutable. I used a lot of these resources to do some of those pieces. Yeah. And that's how all those pieces I was able to, to put together and, and get it out the door pretty quickly. And, and, and anyone can, anyone can do that today. You can do this of your company you can do it for a different type of material. There's a, there's a lot of that that's available. If someone says, you know, gee, I, I couldn't imagine, how could I take this amount of time away from my business or what I'm doing and write a book? Well, you don't have to do it that way. There, there's other avenues to get there. So there's a lot of creativity that can be taken 
to, uh, to, 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 to leverage uh, that can be used today. It's fascinating. I mean, it's really fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with their all-in-one solutions as well, like um, Book Book in a Box, which is now called Scribe Media. That's another one that comes to mind. Oh no, yeah. I, I, I mean, I think I, I I think the title. I I don't know exactly what it is, but I think I've heard of that name of of uh, all-in-one. Yeah, they've basically just sort of codified the whole process of self-publishing, and they they walk you through it all and provide training and pair you up with someone who who uh, you know helps you put it all together. That's great. So you got your book on Amazon. Um, if anyone anyone listening is interested in finding out more about your background and all the services that you provide, uh, they'd like to find out more about you. Is there is there a good place for them to go? Yeah, there's really two places that anyone can go and and, and see a lot of that. Uh, explanation and background info and then make contact. So one is they can go to my website. So I do, I do have a website um, that I think I've provided the links to you, but that one is called brodyassociates.net and they can go to that website. I do have a blog on there. I post different things and, 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 and someone can contact me through that. And then the other alternative is, is through LinkedIn that I was describing earlier, the, the use of LinkedIn and, uh, I do have a, a profile, pretty in-depth profile that's on LinkedIn. So someone can just go to LinkedIn. I think you have the, the URL for that profile also, but someone can go to that and just look up my name and, and go through the background and it'll describe some of those key things and then have ways of, of easily to get in contact. So those are probably the two easiest ways to, to reach out and, and learn more. Excellent. Yes, we'll include those links in the episode show notes and description on podcast players. Um, with that said, as we wrap up here, I just want to say thanks so much for uh, coming on the show and sharing all the great work that you're doing. Uh, really appreciate you coming on here. Good. Thank you. Well, I look forward to uh, the the finished product that that, that you're going to put out of the <laughs> of uh, of another creator of uh, someone who produces who produces content. So I'll, I'll look forward to how that, uh, how that turns out. Absolutely. Cheers, Steve. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for listening. This show is brought to you by Spotlight Podcasting, which is an agency I run where we help consultants launch podcasts that align with their business goals. Now, how do we do that? You might wonder. Basically, we simplify the whole process by setting you up with interviews between you and your ideal prospects, as well as strategic partners. And then we handle all the rest for you. So that means the tech setup, audio editing, show notes, production, distribution, all that stuff. You won't have to worry about it. So if you're ready to launch a podcast that will take you minimal time to run, you can find us at spotlightpodcasting.com.